of Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Bonnie North. It's time now for our monthly segment on entrepreneurship. Hi, I'm Kathleen Gallagher. Kathleen is the executive director of the Milwaukee Institute, and I'm Tim Keene. Tim is founder and director of Golden Angel Investors, and this is How Did You Do That? A show about successful entrepreneurs and how and why they succeeded. If you know what you want to do and how you want to get there, this is the fastest way to do it. It's not for everyone. It's not definitely accepted by everyone. There are definitely people who say you do it at the expense of research. For me, it is completely synergistic and it is a far more productive way to get impact from research. A native of Bombay, India, Jignesh Patel never touched a computer until he went to college. But he knew that computer science was an exciting area where a lot was happening, so he chose it as his major. Jignesh came to Madison in 1991 to get his MS and PhD, then left for a professorship at the University of Michigan. He returned to Madison in 2008 to join the computer science faculty, but it's his entrepreneurial success we're here to talk about. Jignesh has founded three tech startups, all of which have been acquired, one of them by Twitter. He's currently working on a fourth called DataChat, which has what he calls a conversational intelligence platform that helps companies understand their data. Jignesh, welcome to How Did You Do That? Thank you. So Jignesh, is it really true that you never touched a computer before you went to college? That's absolutely true. And you have to remember, this was the early 90s. Uh, computers were just starting to come around, and they were pretty rare as a commodity everywhere uh, in the world. And in India, it was even rarer. Hard to imagine now, isn't it? It is really hard. We are carrying a supercomputer in our pockets every day. So, Jignesh, when you graduated high school in India, you were one of 2,000 students in the entire country selected to attend one of its elite colleges, in this case, Banaras Hindu University. What made you want to continue your computer science studies at UW-Madison? UW-Madison, uh, many people may not know, but has a really elite presence in computer science. It's one of the earliest uh, universities to have founded a computer science department. We are if not the oldest, the second oldest uh, in the United States, and a stellar reputation in some of the fields I wanted to study, especially around data. And uh, there were some amazing professors here, and I was just hooked. Well, yeah, you studied with uh, David DeWitt. He's one of the key reasons UW-Madison has such a strong reputation in data science, and the reason Microsoft put a research lab in Madison. While you were studying under David, you worked on your first startup called Paradise, right? That's correct. And tell us a little bit about that startup. So the startup was essentially a research project where we had about a dozen people at the university working on it. It was primarily funded by NASA, who was getting ready to launch a bunch of satellites in space. And they realized they needed really powerful software to be able to analyze those images, to be able to tell things like, is there correlation between soil erosion and continually planting corn fields uh, year over year? And they funded the project, and we were at a point where the software was working. We nearly got deployed in Bosnia, so I have some really interesting stories talking to generals there. We did not, however, get deployed in Bosnia. But the software was in a pretty good shape. It was able to do things where it was could harness the collective power of a large number of computers to do these spatial analysis. So we spun it out from a company, it was mostly David, and uh, it was acquired by Teradata, where it seeded some of their spatial intelligence 
products in their business intelligence suite. Was that when you got the itch for startups? I'm not sure if I got the itch then, but that certainly was really interesting from the perspective of seeing what does it mean to have a real impact for your research. It's when it actually makes it into the hands of people where they can make actually use that in direct ways. And as a researcher, you often hope for someone else to carry that torch to that final stage. And what was really empowering was seeing that you could do it too. What is the most fun part was I spent half of my time on the technical side and the other half hanging out and hitting the road with some of the top sales and marketing people at Teradata, which had a formidable sales team at that time. So going and pitching to the CTO of Walmart, for example, that was quite a learning curve uh, in my 20s, which was wonderful. But there aren't very many academics that are interested in that kind of stuff. That is true. And I think uh, at many places, it's in fact considered to be a stigma to be spending time on startup as opposed to research. And you, every entrepreneur uh, faces that, and you just get past that because you, you can't really let others tell you what you should be doing if you... If you know what you want to do and how you want to get there, this is the fastest way to do it. It's not for everyone. It's not definitely accepted by everyone. There are definitely people who say you do it at the expense of research. For me, it is completely synergistic, and it is a far more productive way to get impact from research. So after that first experience, you kept doing it. You, le you left Madison and joined the faculty at University of Michigan where you began working on your next startup. Can you tell us about that one? Yep. So at uh, Michigan, this was post 9-11. We were funded by the Department of Homeland Security, which is, you know, as you might remember, a newly formed department. And they were starting to look at the proliferation of mobile devices. You did have mobile devices back in the day. You had cell phones, but they were just really big and clunky and not ubiquitous. It was very clear that you're going to start seeing that technology become commodity. How far in the future wasn't clear, but it was very clear that sometime in the next decade, it would be everywhere. You mean there were going to be a lot of smartphones? There are going to be a lot of <laughs> mobile sensors and of different types. A phone is a sensor which has got dozens of different sensing devices, including a GPS chip, but it's got other sensors in it too, like a camera. It can record audio. It can do all kinds of other things. And the challenge was... How would you, how can you take all of this data coming in from these mobile sensors and in real time find interesting patterns in them from which you can get value? So it was real time streaming data coming in from millions, billions, hundreds of billions of uh, streams of data. And we started building that and spun it out as a company from the University of Michigan. All my startups have been with uh, universities. And that's how we got started. And what happened to that? We started in 2007. If you had to pick the worst possible time to do a startup, we picked it just right, right. We picked it right. Uh, we went through 2008, 2009, where we had the product built. We had burned through a lot of money and uh, basically had zero revenue at that time. We had to go and either shut the company down, uh, the CEO that we had, uh, decided they was going to leave. So I took over the company. I had moved over to uh, Wisconsin a year before that. A in, as a faculty as member. As a faculty member in yeah. 2008. And as part of that moving, we started to see what the trend was happening with the launch of the iPhone in 2007. I had a co-founder who was in the Bay Area. 
So we were headquartered in Ann Arbor. Since we had to move somewhere, we decided we we're going to move the headquarter to the Valley because it was very clear at that time the ecosystem for what's going to happen in mobile was going to get centered in the Bay Area. It was going to be very hard to build that company sitting here remotely. So we moved the company to the Valley. I took over as a CEO in 2010 uh, with pretty close to no money left in the bank. With my team, we turned it around and eventually we got acquired by Twitter, where all of real-time services at Twitter, which, which basically has to decide every time you log on to Twitter or scroll through a screen, Twitter has to decide what tweets to show you, what ads to show you. All of that has to be done in real time. Worldwide, that is served off our platform, which my team and I uh, helped build. And so why did you leave Michigan and come back to Wisconsin? Oh, like? it was the football games. If you're trying to be a Badger <laughs> fan on uh, Saturdays where everyone around you is a big Wolverine fan, it can get pretty ugly pretty fast. No, all kidding aside, uh, my wife dragged me here. I was really happy at Michigan. She was looking for a job, and she had one over here. And so we moved, and this was obviously a really great place. I enjoyed Madison. And it's obviously a university, which still, to this day, has a strong presence in data. So it was those two things coming together, and that's why I came back. So after you sold uh, that company to Twitter, you started another one called QuickStep. That one got bought by Pivotal, right? right? So we spun that out in collaboration with Wharf uh, in 2015. It got acquired by Pivotal six months after we spun out, and I spent a year with Pivotal as a chief scientist helping productionize that technology and look at a bunch of other data-related problems across. So you were, in, were you on leave in California? Yep. I was on leave uh, for a year, physically living in California for most of that year. And so, so what did QuickStep do? What QuickStep did was a bunch of technologies that allowed you to uh, search for things in data at a much faster speed than existing methods. So think of it as a bunch of different algorithmic methods that allows you to compute on data far more efficiently. So it speeds up your data analysis. It speeds up your data analysis, yep. Um, so then after Pivotal acquired QuickStep, you were in California for a year working for Pivotal, yet you came back to Madison to academia again. Why? Uh, I love academia. Academia is the source of all my ideas. Every startup I've had, it's pretty much the same formula which is if you are doing research right in academia, you're working on a problem that is five, 10 years out. It is ambitious for which not everyone agrees on what the right solution is. You take a bet, a non-linear bet, and if you start to see it pay off, then you say, can I commercialize that? Uh, so my current company, Data Chat, is exactly that. Uh, I came back from Pivotal. We'd been working. C can I just say that's a really unorthodox uh, view of academia, maybe? Uh, I think that's true, but there are lots of examples all across where you know I've got faculty in my department who follow that nonlinear path. Uh, definitely, they are outliers, and there are more of those outliers, quote unquote, at other universities. And I'd love for us to get better at supporting those outliers. But there are lots of us at the University of Wisconsin who do this. Especially in computer science? Do you think that's... I think computer science, the really interesting statistics that I heard is that the most entrepreneurial the researchers at the university are people in the arts department. Uh, so I would say there are many in computer science. There are a lot more, obviously, in the biotech area. You see a large number of companies. 
I would say we have a lot less in computer science than we should. I would say we have a lot less in computer science than many of our peers do. Uh, so it's certainly an area that we need to work on, and it's not really appreciated by everyone. Well, Jignesh, though, if I were in academia, especially if I were a young, untenured assistant professor, most of the time I'd be thinking that I had to write papers and do research to advance my career, and yet you seem to be thinking that startups are a better way to do that. How would you counsel a young person thinking about this? Yeah, so when I was working on my tenure, I didn't do startups because it's really tough when you're a junior faculty member. Some people do startups in their, uh, when they're a junior faculty member. It's a lot of work, and it does distract you from a bunch of non-research things that you're learning as a, tenured prof as, as a junior faculty member. How to be a faculty member is a big one. How to teach students effectively. Uh, so the second startup, Locomatics, which I did, was post-tenure, but it was based on research that was built during my tenure. So you have to focus. You can't do more. You can't do too many things if you're going to do all of them poorly. And uh, there's a different rhythm for a startup. There's a different rhythm for tenure. And if you're doing tenure right, you're building on something that is creative, something that is on this nonlinear research path. And you'll be able to tell if it's time to do a startup. My first startup, Locomatics, which I did as a faculty member, was in my sabbatical year. I just want to take this opportunity. Obviously, you're a computer science guy. Can you talk to us about the growth of the computer science field and how central it's become to everything? I think that informs how you're mm -hmm. doing these startups, right? Yes, absolutely. I think it's been said data is the new oxygen for businesses. It's ubiquitous. Every sector of our economy and pretty much every aspect of our life if you just watch from morning to evening, is touched by data directly or indirectly. From things that you buy, things that you watch, things that you interact with on your phone, for example, they are all touched and shaped by technology and data. The well, and you and I have talked, Jignesh, about the changing nature of the C-suite in uh, global companies. Can, can you talk about that a little and how computer science is informing uh, that? Right. A lot of business leaders recognize the importance of technology as a critical part in the boardroom. And if you look at a lot of the big companies that are admired globally today, take Microsoft, for example, a really shining example, or Facebook, Google, Amazon, Netflix, you'll see that their CEOs are all technical. So it's people. almost like to understand where the world is going, you need to have a technology. You need to, yep. And I like to say some of my business friend schools are going to kill me for this. Today for a modern firm, doesn't matter where you are. If you believe that technology is the heart of your survival, you could be a chemical company and the technology could be chemical engineering. You want your C-suite to be full of people who understand the technology at an innate level and also understand business. I find it is easier to take a technologist and then teach her or him business skills than the other way around because it's just, imagine you're a CEO, you're going to make a big bet on a technological pivot. If you have technical skills, you will have a really good informed gut feel for what is it going to cost in terms of time and money to do it, as opposed to relying on a chain of people to inform you that. And there is no substitute for having technology and business skills in the same person at the topmost level today. 
So I have to ask, as long as you're here and you've said that, what are you thinking about all of the big emerging privacy issues in all of this data stuff? I think those are really, really big. There are lots of components that have to come together to solve that. Technological solution is probably just a small part of it. Larger parts of that are probably in the policy space. So I think we need to come back to your current startup. Given the success you've had with all of your previous startups, can you tell us a little bit about Data Chat and what it does and what you're trying to do with it? So going back to how data is central to every industry today, what Data Chat's trying to do is what we call as easing the last mile of delivery for data analytics. Today, if you're a business user trying to make a business decision informed by data, you are either given a report with a pretty chart about what's happening in the business, or you might be more uh, advanced where you might have a dashboard with not one, but maybe 100 charts. And each of them might come with a whole bunch of buttons you could press to perhaps find the answer you're looking for. All of these methods of delivery are essentially separating the creation from the consumption, where someone's created those widgets for you, and they assume that it has the answer you're looking for now. More often than not, since data is moving faster and faster, the answer you're looking for now is not in the pictures that someone else has created for you. And so what we are doing is essentially trying to put that creative ability to go and harness the power of data. And we are trying to create this new class of users called data artists, where they don't have to become programmers, but they can get the uh, patterns, they can pull out patterns from the data directly by just being regular business users, non-programmers, and they do that by fundamentally using English language as a programming language. And there's a whole bunch of technology behind that where English as a language can directly be used in a programming language which is supposed to be uh, very precise and doesn't can't have errors. Programming languages are very accurate. So we have a whole set of technology around how we can take a subset of English, take the nouns and verbs that relate to the business questions you want to ask, convert it into what is a controlled natural language with English grammar syntax that you can easily pick up, learn, and your front line can essentially directly self-serve patterns so, from So data. to break it down, your customer would be a business, and I'm at the business, I'm an employee of the business. What are some questions I might ask your technology that would be easier to get because I'm using your technology. So if you are, for example, trying to manage a building and you have increasing pressures to make sure that it is energy efficient, you can ask, how am I doing today to last Friday or the last 12 Fridays in the last week of August compensate for the change in temperature outside and tell me if what I'm seeing today is, is different? Am I spending more energy or less energy and if I start to see that I'm spending more energy, help me find the root causes for what those are. And of course, you don't say it in this way that I said. As I said, there's this controlled natural language, but there's a whole recommendation engine that comes along to help you do that. And we use sub-languages or sub-structures within languages all the time. When you go to a coffee shop, if you just stand there all day, look at how many nouns and verbs and how many different sentence structures you are using. It's a very small subset. We naturally do that where for efficiency and for removing ambiguity in interpretation, we use substructures all along. And that's what we are doing for data, putting that power directly into the hands of the business users. 
So your last three companies you sold relatively early. Is that what you want to do with Data Chat? What are your hopes for this company? If I were looking to sell, I would have sold last year. We really want to build a big company right here in Wisconsin. Our ambition for Data Chat, my team and me, is very clear. We want to take this company IPO. Well, for all of us, uh, we hope you do that and uh, continue to keep our uh, ecosystem thriving. Thanks so much, Jignesh, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Tim. You can read more about this story and find links to resources by visiting wuwm.com. And listen to all our podcasts at WUWM at the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts.